electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome, everybody, to Power Lunch. Kelly, we'll see you in just a sec. I'm Tyler Matheson. Welcome once again. Here's what's ahead. The Hawks are circling. J.P. Morgan now calling for the Fed to hike by 75 basis points, three quarters of a percent tomorrow, adding that the real surprise would be a 100 basis point hike, a full point. Uh, the economist behind that report is here. But Bank of America's Ethan Harris, who called for a more aggressive Fed earlier this year, says that three-quarter point hike won't happen tomorrow. He's also with us as we get set for tomorrow's big Fed decision. Kelly? Looking very much forward to both of those uh, discussions. Tyler, thanks. Hi, everybody. Stocks a little bit all over the place, mostly in a holding pattern ahead of tomorrow's Fed decision at 2 p.m. Eastern. The Dow was down 250. We're down 194. We had been up as much as 170. The S&P is down 16 to 37.33. The Nasdaq hanging on to some green today, but it's back to 10.820 as the fallout from the deep sell-offs the past week continues. Now, a lot of the action today is in the Treasury market. The 10-year yield has reversed higher, really climbing this afternoon, kind of to what Tyler said, the speculation about maybe even a full-point rate hike. 345, we even hit 346 a moment ago. So you can see here again uh, the firmness that I mentioned. The two-year yield, it's highest since November 2007, 34 Now, Redfin and Compass are also laying off workers. We got wind of those reports today, 8 to 10 percent of staff. Redfin down 4.5 percent. Compass down 7.5 percent. Redfin around an $8 stock. Compass around $4.40. And this comes as the rate on the 30-year mortgage is now 6.28 percent. Just a week ago, Tyler, it was 5.5 percent. And if that doesn't slow the housing market, I do not know what will. But the Fed decision, that's the big question that we're watching for tomorrow. It's now just 24 hours away. We will know what the Fed did by this minute tomorrow. Growing number of economists say that a 75 basis point rate hike is in play, uh, which would be the biggest rate hike since 1994. And that was one of the worst bear markets for bonds in recent memory. The forecast change has been very swift. J.P. Morgan, one of the banks, now calling for such a hike, three quarters of a full point. Also telling investors that one might wonder whether the true surprise, the true surprise, would actually be hiking a full percentage point, 100 basis points, something we think is a, quote, non-trivial risk. The economist behind that report, Mike Faroli, is here. Mike, welcome. It's good to have you with us. Thanks, uh, good to be why here. the change of mind uh, to the 75 uh, basis point hike? What, what right. has changed sure. even after Fed Chief Powell said at his last meeting, responding to, our Mike, uh, to uh, Steve Leitzman, it's off the table? Yeah, so I think the proximate reason is that yesterday several uh, well-placed media sources, including your very own Steve Leitzman, uh, indicated that the Fed had you know, sent out the smoke signals uh, that 75 was very likely. Uh, and again, in contrast to the earlier uh, guidance uh, that we heard from Chairman uh, Powell, which you just mentioned. So as I said, the proximate reason was 
Uh, what we heard from, again, these well-placed media sources, I think the more fundamental reason may have been, I believe, uh, uh, that upside surprise on inflation expectations that we saw last Friday morning in the University of Michigan survey of consumer sentiment. I think that probably is something that really uh, spooked a lot of uh, senior Fed officials and probably led to this rethink over the weekend. The, the Fed, as it is wont to say, has a dual mandate. One is uh, full employment that is consistent with uh, price stability. The other is price stability. Right now, it's not worried about employment particularly, even though we're hearing about some layoffs. It is worried solely and, fo and, and fully, wouldn't you say, Mike, on crushing yeah. inflation and doing whatever it takes to do that. Yes, entirely. And if anything, uh, Chair Powell recently said that the labor market is tight to an unhealthy degree. I don't, want to, I don't think they want to see mass layoffs, but I do think they want to see a little more balance uh, in the labor market in terms of vacancies and unemployment. Uh, so right now, at least for the you know, foreseeable next couple of months, let's say, there's really no conflict between their full employment and their price stability goals both i think yeah. lean in favor of more aggressive policy so so let's just let's just spin the clock forward uh to the next several meetings and months uh let's assume that they raise by three quarters of a point tomorrow what happens then in july what happens in september what happens in november yeah so what i'd say first of all is that i think tomorrow a lot of tomorrow is about catching up right mm -hmm. so i think everyone almost everyone talk to understands that the Fed is well behind where they need to be. So after they've caught up, which I don't think that happens necessarily tomorrow, but maybe after uh, the July meeting, then I think they can be a little more data dependent and start seeing whether uh, uh, the job market is loosening up a little bit, whether inflation is coming down. Uh, I'm not sure they want to give as specific a signal as they did in the May meeting. As, as you mentioned, after that meeting, Chair Powell was pretty specific in the next two meeting ahead, uh, next two meetings ahead, and that didn't work out so well. So I think they're maybe a little <laughs> more mindful of the uncertainties here in terms of the, the type of guidance they give us tomorrow. But I do think they're definitely going to point to the need to expeditiously, as they would say, get back to neutral, call it two and a half percent on the short-term interest rate, uh, and then most likely have to go into restrictive territory. Uh, so I do think they signal something like that. I'm not sure they they give us specific. Uh, <laughs> Uh, basis point moves for the next few meetings. Mike, has the Fed lost control of the bond market? I mean, there's two ways to look at this. One is the people who will blame them for the market turmoil that we're seeing, the spike in mortgage rates and everything else. T-bill auction yesterday didn't go very well. It could be more to come. We'll see. So is are they causing all of this or did they lose control and this is now happening to them and they're trying to get control back? They're, I think they're causing it. Uh, look, and and Inflation doesn't come down magically. Uh, it comes down through people spending less. Uh, and that's going to happen with tighter financial conditions. Uh, and one of those is higher mortgage rates, uh, stronger dollar, uh, weaker equities. So all these things aren't great, but that's, you know, no one said this was going to be an easy path to get inflation down from these pretty elevated levels. So that's I think part and parcel of, of what they're doing. Let's talk to, to people who are exposed to the bond market, as many Americans are, both in their 401ks and in, in mutual funds. Um, uh, the last time there was a three-quarter point hike uh, in, in interest rates was in the mid-90s, and I remember it, and it was a period where the bond market, as I recall, had its worst response in a generation. Do you expect that that's what we're in the middle of now? Well, it's already been 
pretty yes. bad, right? Yes, yes. And, <laughs> and, that, and we can all say how bad that bloodbath was in the bond market in, in 94. Uh, but that did set up, I think, another half decade of prosperity in the real economy. So some pain in financial markets may be what we need to see to ensure that the expansion you know, doesn't end after just a few short years. So I think by the Fed's reckoning, that uh, mid-90s um, uh, episode was, was a success, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Mike, thank you so much. We appreciate you. your time today. We'll, we'll be talking to you again, I think. Sounds good. Mike Faroli. And as more economists call for a 75 basis point hike, investors are bracing for more increased market volatility. Billionaire investor Leon Cooperman told CNBC this morning the bottom isn't in yet. And I would just say that in bear markets, you never know how low is. I'm assuming by the time this is over, if we fall into a recession, that the market could have declined 40 percent from its peak. That's my basic modus operandi. So where does that leave investors? Joining us now is Jack Ablin. He's Crescent Capital's founding partner and CIO. Good to see you again, Jack. Do you agree with Lee? Um, I have to agree with Lee. <laughs> Lee is such a great investor and actually he's a friend of mine. Um, he, you know what? I, I've looked at a lot of the uh, bear markets re related to recessions. Um, and in many respects, he's right. Although I will say I point to really two, the 19... Uh, I'm sorry, the, the 2000s uh, and then the 2008. And both, I would argue, uh, and that's, I think, what he's looking at. I would say both, I would argue, was more than a recession. It was really a systemic problem. Uh, obviously, we know what happened with the great financial crisis and uh, the banking system and Lehman and all that. But even in 2000, if you remember, it, yes, the Fed started raising, they were behind the curve because Greenspan didn't know if we were going to be able to turn the lights on uh, after Y2K. Uh, he kept rates artificially low. Uh, remember, he was flapping his arms in 1996 with irrational exuberance, and he didn't raise rates until 2000. Uh, same sort of thing, started to raise rates. We saw the tech crash. But then what happened was, remember, in 2001, we had 9-11. And then we had WorldCom and Enron. And I think those two pieces together caused investors to really wonder uh, how real and how, uh, how uh, sustainable the equity market was. So I don't think we're in that kind of p position. I don't think we're in a 2008 position. Uh, and that's really where uh, Lee is drawing his 40% uh, downdraft conclusions. If you look at all of the recession, uh, all of the downdrafts related to recessions, we're pretty much right in the middle of it right now. We're kind of median level. Uh, and um, and even the 1980 uh, with Volcker, market was down 16 and a half percent. So I think we're I think we're, you know, pretty well into where we need to be. So if if we are and we're down about what is it, 23, 24 percent in the S&P from the from the recent high back in in early January, um, if we're if we're at the middle point, that puts us at 40 percent off the high. Right. It puts us at 40 or even more. So would you would you be surprised, I guess, is what I'm asking, if we go down another 20 percentage points from here? I would. Um, you know, uh, you know, I'm looking at the S&P, you know, peaking in January. So I'm looking at, you know, you know, pretty much like you said, you know, 20, 20, you know, 2 percent somewhere in there. Um, but, 
it's really, you know, it's it's funny. We put a model together that just looks at changes in interest rates, changes in earnings growth expectations, mm-hmm. and we're right on target. Uh, we started the year at 1.5. We're 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 now at around three, nearly 3.5. Uh, you, uh, we have a nine percent earnings growth expectation, and our model suggests uh, the S and P should be off about 25 percent. So we're very close to what the you know the textbooks would say. Um, I guess you know that's good news, per, perhaps because things are uh, behaving themselves. Uh, but maybe we need to go farther, um, you know, to to just kind of wash out, if you will. Yeah. Uh, because there really hasn't been much selling. Uh, that's that's the interesting part of what I'm seeing going on right now. Well, we don't like to hear that. If that like if that shoe is still to drop, Jack, four stocks you like. They've been kind of stalwarts, relatively speaking. Chevron is up big, obviously, in the energy space. But McDonald's, one of the only stocks that was in the green yesterday. Johnson and Johnson, Coca-Cola. Would you just kind of clip your wings and, and stick to these quality names? That's it. I mean, if you look at quality as a factor relative to uh, the rest of the market. It's trading at the biggest discount that I've ever seen on a relative valuation basis. But the, these stocks have one other uh, feature going for them. Not only are they high quality companies, but they're dividend achievers. These are companies uh, that continually uh, maintain and grow their dividends over time. So they're part of the div- dividend aristocrats, mm. so to speak. And when you see you know, a company like FedEx raising the dividend and they're up pretty dramatically today, uh, clearly, investors are gravitating to quality and they're gravitating to dividends. And uh, that's what we're going to stick with for the time being. All right. Jack, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Jack Ablin. All right. We've got a news alert out of Washington and Elon Moy has the details. Hey, Elon. Well, Tyler, the head of the Senate Finance Committee is proposing a massive new tax on big oil and gas companies. This comes from Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon. He's proposing an additional 21 percent tax on the profits of oil and gas companies with at least a billion dollars in annual revenue. Now, this tax on so-called excess profits would be applied to anything above 10 percent of return on expenses. And it would come in additional to the regular corporate income tax that these companies would have to pay. In addition, Wyden is also proposing a 25 percent excise tax on any stock buybacks that are completed by the company. His office specifically calling out Exxon and Chevron for announcing $40 billion worth of buybacks over the next two years. The bill would also close accounting loopholes that his office says are letting them, these companies, lower their tax liabilities in a statement his office says that the tax code is working for big oil, but not American families. So again, Senator Ron Wyden, the head of the Senate Finance Committee, proposing a 21 percent tax on big oil and gas companies. Tyler, back to you. All right, Elon, thank you very much. And we'll see what happens on that one. All right, coming up, tech stocks vulnerable to higher rates. The tech ETF down 28 percent since the start of the year. Why a few mega caps might be your best bet for the next two to five years. Plus, rising diesel prices rippling through the critical transportation sector. But for large players like UPS, FedEx, and Night Swift, well, are elevated prices actually beneficial? And as diesel prices surge, nat gas prices plunge. A look at what's behind today's sell-off in natural gas when Power Lunch continues.
people today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back, everybody. The Nasdaq 100 losing about $6 trillion in market value so far this year. That, according to FactSet, as inflation concerns ripple through that sector. The big players like Apple, Google, Microsoft, well, down 25% or so. But our next guest says these names could be the single best investments you'll make over the next two to five years. Joining us now, Boris Schlossberg, BK Asset Management, Managing Director of FX Strategy and a CNBC contributor. And I dare you to try and say all of that, Boris. That's a lot of stuff right there. That's a, that's a mouthful that you survived, yes. Yeah. I, you know, I, I guess I think I take comfort um, at a time like this. Uh, rightly focusing one's um, target down the road two to five years. Why do yeah. you think these blue chip tech stocks will be the winners? So Warren Buffett once said that I would rather own a wonderful company at a fair price than a fair company at a wonderful price. And that's really my thesis here. Basically, the idea here is if you own these three bluest of the blue chips, Microsoft, Apple, and Google, uh, for the next two to five years, there's a little that I can think of that could go really wrong in this position. These are companies that have massive, massive market dominance over their spaces. Their products essentially have a perpetual demand, and they are huge cash cows. And effectively, for all intents and purposes, they're averaging right now at around 20 to 25 PE with a 20% growth. Some of them are growing faster than that. Some of them have a little bit uh, lower PE, but that's essentially the buy. And to me, that's an incredible value at this point. Having said this, though, I will say one thing. Nobody knows whether we're at the bottom or not. So to me, the way I would trade all of these companies is in a scaling basis, either dollar cost average into the position for the next six or 12 months, or sell at the money puts same way and just build a position in both of these stocks. Because there's obviously no way to know if we're at the bottom of the move here or not. But my point is that we're at a fair valuation. And if you look two to three years forward, the growth in these companies is almost certain to surpass where we're at at this point. And it should be a very interesting compounding effect. For and you. I think it's, it's not exactly coincidental that even though these companies are down uh, from their from their peaks, they are down a little bit less than the Nasdaq as a whole. Absolutely, they have a huge cash cushion. They are massive profit generators. I mean, you know, people are talking about high interest rates, higher cost of capital. None of this matters to these companies. These these, these companies have internal rate of returns. They're not. They have, they have no need to borrow funds. In fact, mm -hmm. you know, the the funds that they borrowed have been basically essentially to buy back stock. And I think that's the other interesting thing from from a financial point of view is mm -hmm. that because they're so cash rich. They can afford down the road 
to issue um, uh, buybacks, and that mm-hmm. it should only should also serve as a, as, as a good support for uh, for them going forward. I believe or I increase saw. Their dividends. I, I beg beg your pardon. I'm sorry to interrupt sorry. you. Um, I believe I saw on your list a stock that some people might be surprised to see, and that is Zoom. Yes. So Zoom to me uh, sort of was an outlier. It was obviously a much more speculative bet, but my view on Zoom is that work from home is here to stay. We've seen a thousand stories where employees, employers have been begging employees to come back to work, and we see that almost everybody is resisting it. If everybody, uh, most of the kind of information technology, you know, white collar work here can be done, 90% of it can be done from home. And I think the pandemic just completely radically changed behaviors. So to me, Zoom becomes just stock and parcel of our life going forward um, in a business environment. And I think that's why it's come down so much off its, you know, parabolic highs. I think on a longer term basis, it becomes a very interesting trade. Does it have enough of a moat around it? I think it does because, you know, it's it's kind of like first to, to market dominates mm-hmm. the market, right? We really, we don't think about any other uh, tool than, than Zoom when we want to try to share right. our, you know, conversations. I'll Zoom you, yeah, I'm gonna, right? I'll, yeah, Zoom, I'll you. Zoom you. I mean, when you get exactly. verbed, uh, you know yes. you've made it, right? Yeah, once you get a verb, you've got you made it. That's right. exactly it. All yes. right. Thanks, Boris. Good to see you. Boris Schlossberg. And ahead on the show, the $5 dilemma. While consumers are shocked by these high gas prices, transport firms are somewhat used to pricey diesel. For now, they can pass those costs along to consumers, but how high is too high? Plus, Bitcoin dropping back towards 20000 But bull Mike Novogratz says Fed weakness could be good for crypto. We have that. And before we head to break throughout the month, CNBC is celebrating Pride Month. Here is Ryan Ruggiero, CNBC Senior Director of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion. The most important thing that I want people to know about the LGBTQ community is that we are everywhere. We are CEOs, CFOs, actors, doctors, lawyers, football players, and we are journalists. We are also so appreciative of the many LGBTQ trailblazers and allies that continue to help create change in our community. We are not going anywhere, and we will continue to stand united in the face of injustice until we are all treated equally under the law. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. The great crypto crush continuing today. Bitcoin down 3%, falling to just over 21,000 earlier in the day. Now, that's a potential problem for companies like MicroStrategy. But uh, there you see it, uh, led by Michael Saylor. It's been stockpiling Bitcoin on its balance sheet, then borrowing money to buy even more. Now, it warned that it could face a margin call if Bitcoin did fall to around 21,000. Coinbase having a wild day after saying it will cut 18% of its workforce, about 1,100 jobs. Uh, It cites the possibility of a crypto winter. But Michael Novogratz, founder of Galaxy Digital, seems to dismiss that possibility, saying on Squawk Box today that he thinks crypto is close to a bottom at these levels. And when the Fed stops raising interest rates, that, he says, is when Bitcoin will explode north. Let's go to uh, Frank Holland now for the CNBC News Update. Hey there, Tyler. I'm Frank Holland. Here is your CNBC News Update at this hour. 
The House committee investigating the January 6th Capitol attack has been postponed. The hearing was postponed due to scheduling conflicts and production challenges. The committee will meet on Thursday for a previously scheduled hearing. Canada announcing it's suspending the COVID-19 vaccine requirement for domestic travel. However, that mandate may be reinstated later, especially in the case of a new surge. And authorities in Tennessee are warning locals not to pick up folded money after two people found dollar bills that were laced with fentanyl. The sheriff's office, sheriff's office in Giles County, they shared the warning, saying that the small amount of fentanyl laced powder is more than enough to kill anyone that it comes in contact with. Also in some sports news, the U.S. Open allowing tennis players from Russia and Belarus to compete this year despite Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine. Wimbledon has banned those athletes. The U.S. Tennis Association CEO saying he did not want to hold those individuals accountable for the decisions of their governments. That's the very latest. Kelly and Tyler, back over to you. All right, Frank, thank you very much. Ahead on Power Lunch, the Fed day forecast. Tomorrow is the day. Some experts are demanding steeper rate hikes. Others say it could wreak havoc on the economy. Will the Fed bring brighter days or a hurricane? We'll take a look at what tomorrow's decision means for the financials in particular. And we will get a final take from B of A's Ethan Harris. Welcome back, everybody. It's that time. 90 minutes left in the trading day. So let's get caught up across the markets on stocks, bonds, commodities and the bank trade as we await the Fed tomorrow. Let's first start with Bob Bassani, who's got the latest on our markets and a little bit of a holding pattern, but some green out there, yeah. Bob. Yes, uh, it's sort of indeterminate trading, but some interesting sectors are a bit on the weak side today. Let's take a look at consumer staples. Uh, Coca-Cola was a big stalwart for a while. Procter & Gamble, Clorox. Uh, interestingly, that they've been, they're down notably today. Uh, there's some debate about how expensive they are. Most of these are trading in the mid-20s. Maybe for some, there are uh, alternative uh, uh, brands that might be available for people who are more inflation conscious. Uh, but that's weaker today. Another sector that's weak, the defensive sector, is healthcare. Uh, look at United Health here. Now, this is a real stalwart. It's a high price stock, so it really influences the Dow Jones Industrial Average. So that's almost 75 points of the Dow because of United Health. But it's been down three or four days in a row as well. These are defensive sectors. Uh, I want to show you how interest rate sensitive stocks are getting affected by these dramatic rise in Treasury yields. Utilities have been getting clobbered. Most of these big utilities, this is Con Ed Southern, these are the biggest utilities out there. They're down 12, 13, 14, 15 percent in five or six trading days. Remember, they compete against against treasuries. So when treasury yields go up, these go under some kind of pressure. Finally, you do not want to be a mortgage company. You don't want to be a mortgage REIT right now. You heard about mortgages towards the 6% range. Invesco's out there. They invest in mortgage-backed securities. MFA invests uh, in mortgage-backed securities as well. These have been dramatically to the downside, Kelly, in the last few days. And uh, of course, uh, you, you've heard Diana talking about mortgage rates in the 6% range, and they were 4% just a couple of months ago. Yeah, Kelly, now we're seeing you. some layoffs as well. Bob, thank you very much. Mm. Let's turn now to the culprit behind all of this, the bond market. The 10-year yield reversing higher this afternoon. And Rick, what, 3.46? I mean, we're nearing 3.5% this uh, these days. Yeah, yeah, but you know what? Let's not point the finger at the Treasury market. Treasury market's not the culprit. They're the messenger. The culprit's the Federal Reserve and overspending and overstimulating. Now, look at these charts of two-year note and 10-year note yields since Thursday's pre-CPI close. Wow, we're up 60 basis points in a two-year at 341. We're up 40 basis points in a 10-year, hovering right under 345. 
and it just doesn't end there. These numbers are unbelievable, as were CPI on Friday, as are PPI today, even though every number virtually is not at the cycle high with regard to inflation. The issue is it's coming down snail type slow. And if we look at what's going on in foreign exchange, wow is all I could say. Here's the pound versus the dollar. Okay, granted, right now it's at the lowest level versus the dollar since about March of 2020. But we're just not far away from taking that chart all the way back to 1985. And when it comes to the yen, we're talking about one of the largest economies in the world. And its currency now is at a 24-year low back to 1998 against the dollar. Okay, And their stock market peaked in 1989 at 39K, currently at 26,600. Ponder that. And every Fed Fund Futures contract, Kelly, for all of the rest of this year, they have one every month, through all the way through September of 23, is at lowest prices ever, which means 75 in my book for tomorrow. Back to you. Wow. Just incredible, incredible moves to talk about there, Rick. Thank you for all of those headlines. Our Rick Santelli. Speaking of headlines and culprits, let's get to oil. Pippa Stevens at the Commodity Desk. Pippa? Hey, Kelly, oil dropping here into the close, but still holding right around 120. And today, UBS raised its forecast, saying it expects Brent to trade at 130 this fall and then average 125 bucks for the next three quarters. So basically high prices for a long time. And this comes down to demand rising all over the place. In China, as mobility restrictions are lifted, in the northern hemisphere with summer travel, and in the Middle East with temperatures spiking. Let's check on prices. WTI 118.67, down about 2%. Brent crude down 1% at 120.93. Energy stocks, though, are in the green, although down from earlier highs. Occidental is today's winner with Phillips 66, Marathon Oil and Valero also registering gains. And take a look at shares of Continental Resources, up 13.7% after founder Harold Hamm launched a bid to take the company private. The Ham family collectively owns roughly 83% of outstanding shares, and their bid is for 70 bucks per share. That's about 9% above where the stock closed yesterday. Continental Board Kelly said it will establish a committee to consider the proposal. Yeah, and Pippa, meantime, let's talk about NatGas, where we are seeing huge swings in prices today. What's going on? Yeah, Nat Gas is down sharply and on track here for the worst day since November 2018, down 16.5%. This after Freeport LNG said that its facility that caught fire last Wednesday will be offline for longer than initially thought. The company said it's aiming for a partial restart in 90 days, but that a complete return of operations is not expected until late this year. And Freeport represents roughly 17% of the U.S.'s LNG processing capacity. So why are prices plummeting? Well, the U.S. market will now be temporarily oversupplied. A whole bunch of gas that was slated to be exported is now available here. And Tortoise Managing Director Rob Thummel noting that inventories will increase, which will push down prices. But even with today's drop, prices are still up about 100% for the year. Kelly? Yeah, just incredible uh, information there. Pippa, thank you very much, our Pippa Stevens. One of the sectors that could be most impacted by rate hikes tomorrow, for instance, 
are the financials. In the past, the group has traded in tandem with yields. Usually yields go up, stocks go up too. Not happening this year, especially if rates are rising and a potential recession looms. The narrative for banks could be changing. Joining us now is Cheryl Pate. She's a portfolio manager at Angel Oak Capital Advisors. Cheryl, we have some picks here that you're saying uh, for the financials people can look to ahead of the Fed meeting, but I'm not sure many people really want to get in front of this thing. Why should they? I think the way that we're really positioning and where we see the best relative value in banks um, is really in the regional and community bank space. And the rationale there is these are really your pure play spread-based lenders. Um, So they're making their money off the difference between loans and deposit costs. And with rates moving up, that's the purest play way to play that um, relative to some of the big banks that have more diversified models, have exposure to capital markets, which have clearly seen some volatility, and and frankly have more exposure to the consumer, which is one area where we do expect there could be some pressure on the lower income consumer. Right. I mean, some of the picks here that you like, Pinnacle, for instance, down 24% this year, Signature and SVB down 40 to 45%, a little different story there. South states only down 5%. I mean, how do people find a South state versus a pinnacle? And, and in general, they might just say, you know what, I don't really need to get in now. I can just wait a few weeks or months maybe. Um, you really think prices are going to get away from them if they do that? I think we're seeing valuations kind of move towards trough levels for the banks. Um, What we've seen in sort of the the types of names that we recommend are ones that have been higher higher growth, whether it's the the geographical area they're in or by business strategy. A lot of these are serial acquirers, for example, um, and have a demonstrated track record. So I think there's a lot of upside to the fundamentals. But also, I think what we've been hearing recently at industry conferences is that banks are really focusing on protecting book value in this type of environment, too. So, for example, you're seeing a lot of um, the securities portfolio moving to held to maturity. So you don't have that mark to market volatility and you sort of take that off the table, which I think was um, an unexpected surprise in first quarter that we're largely through um, looking ahead to second quarter earnings. So, so Cheryl, you describe these companies as classic spread-based uh, companies, meaning they they acquire uh, money at a cheap price and they lend it out at a higher price. Uh, a lot of people are are depositors who depend on on return off their savings. Is there any sign that banks like these will increase what they pay on deposits or for CDs? Or- I, I think we're, we're, yeah, I do think we are starting to see um, the, the quickest move will be on the online accounts. So names mm-hmm. like Ally, Capital One, that have an online presence, and that's where they really draw their deposit base. We've seen those rates move up um, quite significantly, um, somewhere around close to 1% now. So that's Mm -hmm. been a a pretty big move. CDs is also the other place where you'll see that move up more quickly. Um, And again, it it depends on the mix, but, um, you know, the types of names that we're looking at have more of a checking um, deposit base versus some of these higher cost products. Right. Interesting, though. So so if you're looking for a higher savings rate, you, you suggest looking at some of the online banks. Do I have that right? That's, that's correct. All yes. right. Cheryl, thanks very much. Cheryl Pate, we appreciate your time today. After the break, FedEx raising its dividend even as it faces higher gasoline and jet fuel costs, uh, sending the stock higher and uh, not by just a little bit. 
as we head to a break. This month, we have some financial planning tips to help protect your money during market turmoil. And here is senior personal finance correspondent, Sharon Epperson. Here's a tip for your money, your future. Contributing to your 401k, even when the market is volatile, allows you to continue to take advantage of dollar cost averaging. You're investing your money in equal portions at regular intervals, no matter how the market is doing. And that means when the market is going down, you're buying more shares with the same amount of money. And when the market recovers, you have more shares going up. So you're also not risking a lump sum all at once. For CNBC, I'm Sharon Epperson. Welcome back to Power Lunch, everybody. Rising fuel costs really hitting the economy hard. Uh, and they don't only show up at the gas pump, of course. They trickle down to everything we buy virtually. Frank Holland here now with a look at how the transports are dealing with the jump in gas and diesel. Frank? Hey there, Kelly and Tyler. You know, down transports, they're up today, but they're actually down over the past week as investors have become more and more concerned about rising fuel prices. But $5 a gallon is nothing new for trucking and for logistics. Prices for diesel, the fuel of the supply chain, crossing that mark weeks ago and rising even more than consumer prices have. But the biggest publicly traded players, they can actually benefit. They charge customers a fuel surcharge based on retail prices while they pay pretty close to wholesale. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Two of the largest truckers, Knight Swift and J.B. Hunt, they reported 10% of their revenue or more from those surcharges last quarter. FedEx and Saya, a trucker for big box stores, also have a fuel surcharge in place. But the rising cost of gas can hit consumer spending and therefore inventory demand. I spoke with the CEO of supply chain tech company, Zebra Technologies. They say their customers are still acquiring inventory to meet changing trends. Having um, the right inventory is probably the challenge for most. Right? If you look at re retailers, I think that for what a lot of retailers have said in the last uh, uh, month or so uh, was that the, the demand uh, pattern changed quite a bit. So rising prices of fuel can also benefit public players as the increased cost can be a headwind for independent truckers and is just one of the factors pushing orders of new big rigs down 39 percent lower year over year. That's also lowering competition for those publicly traded players. Frank, let's also talk a little bit about FedEx, the stock up uh, double digits today. Tell us the story. Yeah, a really big historic day for FedEx raising their dividend by more than 50%, adding some new board members. One of the reasons that the market is so excited about this stock, you see it's up 14% right now, that dividend raise is a sign of confidence in the strength of their business. When you raise your dividend, especially by this mark, it's a sign that you believe your revenues are gonna be stable going forward. And then when you look at some of the other companies that they compete with, especially UPS, we all know UPS and FedEx, they're rivals. UPS has a dividend yield of 3.5%. One of the focuses of these new board members is to increase total shareholder return. Actually, management compensation has been tied to that shareholder return. And now uh, FedEx, after this dividend raise, is going to have a uh, dividend yield of just about 2%, putting it on par with a C.H. Robinson, another big company in the supply chain space. And again, returning more of that money to shareholders. One of the big criticisms of FedEx during Fred Smith's tenure is that they were spending too much money on planes and facilities and not returning enough of that money to their shareholders. All right, Frank, thank you very much. Frank Holland, appreciate it. Coming up, the Fed's quarter pounder. The market getting a rate hike tomorrow, but how many? One quarter? Two quarter? Three quarters or more? What should you expect with less than 24 hours to go? Power Lunch, back after this.
Welcome back to Power Lunch, everybody. We are less than 24 hours away from that big Fed decision on interest rates. And our next guest uh, was just about the first to make an aggressive call on Fed tightening earlier this year. But he, he doesn't right now see that three-quarter point hike tomorrow. He's sticking with his call for 50 basis points or a half percentage point. Ethan Harris is head of global economics research at Bank of, Samer of America Securities. Ethan, welcome. Uh, your calls earlier this year have, were prescient. Why are you sticking with that half point and not running with, a, with an increasing crowd who say three quarters is likely tomorrow? Well, I, I don't think it's out of the question. I think that it makes sense for the Fed to think about doing 75, not just at this meeting, but at the next meeting after that. Um, they are behind the curve. Uh, the recent date has been quite ugly. I think the main argument for 50 uh, is that if you think about it, the Fed has moved from being really very slow and behind the curve to actually moving pretty quickly. Um, the May, June, and July meetings are only three months. I mean, it's a very tight Fed calendar right now. So they'll, after over a three-month period, if they follow what they're saying they're going to do, they'll hike 150 basis points. That's a pretty aggressive uh, movement. Um, and the other thing I think to keep in mind here is that, of course, you could argue that the Fed needs to do more rate hikes, but they're not going to go all the way to their terminal rate in a quick set of steps. They need, to, they need to give themselves at least a little bit of breathing space to see how the economy's handling the shock. And you have to admit, the uh, financial markets have taken a pretty big hit uh, in recent months. I think appropriately, the Fed is really trying to cool off uh, the markets. So I'm not, a, I'm not a, you know, pounding the table. They're not going to go 75. I cer certainly, they could. Uh, but I'm kind of leaning towards 50. One of the things that, that, that occurs to me is that I think uh, Chair Powell and the Fed in recent years has become much more focused on transparent messaging. And the messaging, certainly at the last meeting and at the press conference afterward, was that we're looking at a half-point rise uh, and that that seemed appropriate for the next meeting and maybe the one after that. And, and he said, in response to Leisman, uh, you know, 75 base points, sort of off the table. So maybe yeah. the argument for the 50 basis points is we want to follow through with what our prior messaging was and not diverge from that. And at tomorrow's meeting, say, listen, we may go three quarters of a point at subsequent meetings. I just wonder how, yeah. how much messaging consistency plays into their thinking as well. I think it plays some role. Um, if you think about the recent news flow, so the New York, uh, uh, the Wall Street Journal reporter who reported the Fed was considering a 75 basis point hike. Right. Uh, I think that one of the reasons he said that was be to correct what Powell had said a month ago to Steve Leisman, which was it's not on the table. Right. And so put it on the table through the press. The Fed has put it on the table. Does that mean that there's a hidden message here that putting it on the table means they're definitely going to do it? That's where the real debate is here. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think that um, it's slightly more likely that they go 50 basis points. They've got a long way to go here. Um, you know, this is a war, not a, not a, you know, not a skirmish. This is going to take a while here. And Ethan, it's Kelly again. Tell us why you don't think they should, this should be more front-loaded. So when Bill Dudley today says, or Mike Faroli was saying the same thing, you can make the case for doing a full-point hike. Jim Cramer's been calling for that, for instance. Why not, if you're, if you're going there, why not just go there? And, and maybe this doesn't have to be a multi-year fight. 
Well, I, I actually agree that if I'd been, if I was made king here, <laughs> if they made the mistake of making me the head of the Fed, I would have gone quicker than they went. I mean, I, I think there was a strong case for hiking rates back in October and November of last year when we first started to see sustained high inflation, when we saw how red hot the labor market was becoming. And I thought in the spring there was a good case to start the hiking cycle with a 50 basis point hike. So they've, but they've chosen repeatedly to take a, a more cautious approach. Um, so my job as a Wall Street economist is not to forecast what I think they should do, but what they will do. Um, I think it's a close call on 50 versus 75. I think it's, it would be extremely unlikely that they would hike 100 basis points. Um, that would look like panic. Uh, the markets are already taking a pretty good hit here. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Fed's behind the curve. Uh, and right. it's been frustrating to watch in, in, in reality. Yeah. yeah. Ethan, uh, excellent points, and, and we thank you for your time today. We, we'll know a day from now, won't we? Thank you very much. We will. Ethan Harris, thank Bank you. of America Securities. And for more on tomorrow's Fed meeting, uh, stay tuned. We'll have some charts for you before we close out here on Power Lunch. All right, let's make graphic for you. I have the toy today. Let's make graphic for you what's been happening in the bond market this year. It's the kind of thing we haven't seen in decades. Look at where the 10-year began the year here at a little less, about 1.6%. And when you get all the way up here to 3.4, it is a gain of 129%. It looks like this isn't working, doesn't it? Draw. Let me see if I can hit draw again. But when you come over here up to the peak, it's more than 130% higher. But look at the span there. There it is in January when you come across to March. There you see it. Let's go to the two 10-year spread, which is one of the predictors of whether the economy is going to go into a recession. The fact that the difference between the yield on the 10-year and the two-year is 0.04%. That is what tells you right there, this doesn't work. Kick it, Robert, <laughs> get it this out Take it away. <laughs> I don't need this. I'm just going to keep the stylus. But that's the number you've got to pay attention to. Five and ten-year spreads. Let's look at that one, Kel, shall we? Sure. Even more negative. And there you see it is actually negative, which means that the five-year is... Uh, is yielding more. Mortgage rates? Well, yeah, let's do a quick source of comfort. Three-month, 10-year, still sharply positive. That tells you there's still strong nominal demand impulse here that the Fed is trying to catch up with. And there's the 30-year fixed mortgage rate. This is your headline, folks, 6.28% today. And I'm going to just see, maybe it works on there. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Sorry. Thanks for watching Power Lunch. Closing bell right now. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.